And I cannot laugh too quick this morning. I'm absolutely overwhelmed at the results of this conference we have here. I've been hacking this thing for a lot of years. I've been around AA for a lot of years. You can tell me, tell by looking at me, I've been somewhere for a long time. <laughs> and without fear of being refuted, this has been one of the greatest experiences. And I'm always overwhelmed to stand in front of a group of people who are supposed to be dead. And I challenge the earliest newcomer. If you hang around this thing very long, you've got to believe something. It's inevitable that you will believe something because we're the only people in the field of alcoholism who has any kind of a track record that's not made up of gobbledygook statistics. And we have the privilege of looking at our track record every time we go to an AA meeting. That's our track record, is the new guy who's sober. Now, it's terrible to have to go back into a world of reality, and that's what the end of a conference always is. Isn't there anything is dead, is a dead conference, it's over, you know that. And it's hard for people. Most, I thought everybody would leave this morning. I didn't know. Everybody shook hands with me last night and said, sorry, we can't wait for your meeting in the morning, you know. <laughs> and of all the speakers we've had here, starting Friday night, and the, the momentum, oh, we kind of got tied up with a priest or two here Friday night. <laughs> But they had somebody that was sick over there. Them priests, they always got them over there. They never have anybody sick right here. <laughs> I was in Chicago when the Pope came, stood in his audience, and he was really in fine form that morning. He got up and performed a couple of warm-up miracles. He took a lame man and made him blind. <laughs> then he did the very near impossible thing. He healed up in Al-Anon's mouth. Farm, and he started talking in Latin real fast and finally went from there to Polish and from there to Swedish, <coughs> then into English, and he ended up talking in shorthand. <laughs> and there was a drunk said to me, what's he saying? And I said, he's saying, read the book, go to the meetings, and don't take a drink. <laughs>
speakers that we've had at this conference were exceptionally good. I've laughed and died with most of them, particularly the gal that came as a substitute who is two years my senior in AA. She just shot hell out of my status at this convention. I knew I was going to be the oldest one here, and I could speak with authority. <laughs> and she blew it for me. <laughs> and then last night, <laughs> we had something here. <laughs> this fellow, the first time I ever met him, we were riding on an airplane, and years ago, you know, when a drunk gets on an airplane, the first thing he'll do is buy the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> and Clancy was sitting there reading the Wall Street Journal and using his welfare check for a letter guide <laughs> on I don't think he's erratic really in the old church group that he's raised in the Lutherans up in Wisconsin they're great family people and it's been the custom for many years for the youngest child to sleep with the parents I don't think they meant for him to sleep with them till they were 28 years old <laughs> His daddy used to get him at 3 o'clock in the morning try to get him to go out and get a loaf of bread. And he'd say that, you know, no stores open at this time. And his dad'd say, get the goddamn bread. <laughs> I suspect that if there are any newcomers here, you'll discover one day when you begin to laugh, that we never kid anybody that we don't love a great deal. And the guy that stood here last night said, ah, he's a pussycat at heart. Let me tell you, I visited this place that he runs, the Midnight Mission, and saw what it was like. And he was running around giving orders like Colonel Clink. And <laughs> told me what a tight ship he was running. And he did. It's a marvelous thing. And we, he was telling me about the rules of the place. And he said that nobody can stay over one night. In the morning, he's got to go. And as he showed us around, he took us to the kitchen, to the entrance place, and all of that. And finally, we got up into the dormitory part. And we were walking down the hall. And I looked in the dormitory. And way over next to the wall, there lay a man in a bed. And I caught him by the arm. I said, come here. You said, everybody's got to leave in the morning. And he started fidgeting and making excuses for it. And he tried to pull me on down. We had a group of people. And I said, come on back. Tell me about it. And he said, well... Our books show that that bed is out for repairs. 
And the fellow's got to die in the next two or three days, and I think he can use that bed that's not on our books. I saw him for what it truly was, and I suspect that of all the princes of 12-steppers and Alcoholics Anonymous, you were looking at one of the great last night. I've traveled this country far and wide, and I've seen them with the brightness in their eye that came from knowing him. My hat's off to him, really. We'll get along with some of the things. I don't know what to talk about. These people have run the course here. They've left me nothing to say. So I'm going to wander around and say nothing for a long time, you know. <laughs> well, I like to talk a little about what I like about Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, that's as good as I can do. And uh, some of the things that maybe Alcoholics Anonymous is not. Because AA has grown rather fashionable lately. We used to worry about the stigma in on alcoholism. Oh, we were so ashamed. And now we don't worry about that anymore. We worry about how to keep out the social climbers in AA. <laughs> and uh, well, we were everywhere. We were on, I just came from Hollywood and they're casting some soap operas for this season out there. Replacing alcoholics in the plot. We've replaced two homosexuals and one bad ovary. <laughs> but if you come in AA to make any points, forget it. There's still a certain stigma on alcoholism. You cannot escape it. I have a nephew in Dallas that he's a psychiatrist. And then I got another nephew in San Francisco and he's a homosexual. And you know my people brag on them more than they do on me, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I want to always maintain the dignity of alcoholism. come to having it happen Friday night. <laughs> we evolved out of a religion. We were thrown out of a religion. The uh, Oxford Movement in New York City threw us out. And we injected ourselves from that in Akron. We're not a religion. Sometimes I wish that we were. Then I wouldn't have to work them damn steps and I could shout and promise my way into sobriety. <laughs> AA is not a spectator sport. AA is not a competitive event. There's no way possible you can be better than or quicker than in AA. And there's no goalpost in alcoholics alone. One day, without alcohol, 
is a recovery to us. The foreword of the old book, Alcoholics Anonymous, in the first three lines says that we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And the word recovered appears six times in the foreword to the 12 and 12 and 18 times through the book. A Bill said in chapter 4, why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered. We have recovered. So, oh, I don't know, I'd have to go back to a day to show you the humor that this society came out of. I was up in Indianapolis a lot of years ago with Bill and what's his name here, Flanagan was kind of new at that time. He was the chairman up there at that meeting. But the night of the beginning, it is a bunch of doctors, you know, a goofier bunch of dingbats I have never been in. And they were all talking and one another, and Bill and Lois, I think, and Mary and I were the only non-alcoholics there. And these fellows have a custom at this little meeting that they have and they have a long microphone and it's on a wire and they pass it down and each one of the doctors introduces himself in turn with uh gives his name and his forte you know about forte that's a little town down here close to louisville <laughs> and they get up and say i'm dr so-and-so and a proctologist and I'm not just so and so, and I'm a psychiatrist, and so on down the line. It was about 200 of us there, I suspect, and it went the whole course of the event. And we were sitting way over in the corner, and Bill was the very last to get a hold of the microphone. And to show you the absolute humor that this society sprang from, he got up and he said, My name is Bill Wilson. I'm an amateur faith healer, presently unemployed. <laughs> Old Flanagan was a hurry friend. And I've always remembered that because I never heard that man talk and I knew him for a long time. I have never heard that man utter over three or four sentences unless you finally worked your way back to the man that hadn't come through the door yet. This was his fetish. This was his thing. The fellow out there fellow out there. He wrote a pamphlet in 1949 by the time I came to A. When I came to A, there was only 80,000 members worldwide. And I have had God's gift to see what has happened in this society. And believe you me, I ain't worried about it a damn bit today, I'll tell you. He said in this pamphlet that there are probably a thousand alcoholics out there that would come to us if they just knew what we did. There are a million alcoholics out there. And last year, we had the notice that we had passed over a million strong. They're here now, and we're waiting on the second one. In our book, it took 37 or 38 years to sell the first million big A books. 
and only five years to sell the second million. I think A's doing all right. I'm not the least bit worried about it when you can go into little groups. And I think that if ever there's a trouble in this society, the tradition that talks about autonomy will save us. Because if anything is going to happen to you in this society, it'll happen in the group. It'll happen in the group. I'll tell you a little about Manasseh's drinking. I don't remember all of it. My mother told me I was an only child. <laughs> My father never talked about it much. <laughs> that was raised very similar to Clancy. I was a Oh, God, here's some. You know, the language in AA is killing me now. These guys come in there and they award themselves an honorary doctor's degree about two weeks. And first thing you know, they're using this big terminology about constitutionally predisposed, environmentally disillusioned, <laughs> penetrating analysis. I tried that on a drunk, and he puked on me. <laughs> and if you better go to read one of these pamphlets, the one of them on the foot of the bed, you better be a fast reader. Yeah. It's your head. I'm an authority on puking. I have run the gamut from spray puking <laughs> to projectile puking. I can puke and never misstep. All of the different kinds in between. I can tell you about that. That's useless. That was uh, what they call, and I'll use a lot of high-sounding language here, you know, to show you that I'm an illiterate. <laughs> they said I was a precocious child. Now, that's a starting you out right off of the bat, you know. They might have told me that to my face, and I don't know what the hell precocious meant, but I knew it was different. And that started the series thing of being different. And they never told anybody around that class that I was a precocious child. And I thought it was real fine. I was 13 and a half years old. My voice was a-cracking. And it was just about to happen. Uh, I'm going to date myself here. In those days, we had a class in school called Music Appreciation. And the old Vic Trolley, you can wind it up, you know, and this teacher I had had the breast on her like a pheasant. God damn, she was a good lady. <laughs> and she took a special interest in me, maybe because I was precocious. <laughs> and she got to where she'd keep me in at school, you know. And she tried to make a singer out of me, wanted me to sing. And she'd put my, her hands over here and say, now say, ah, ah, ah. 
and lower, 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 and said, can you see how to do it? You must be basic and come from the middle of your stomach. And she said, now put your hands over on my chest. <laughs> and I said, uh, she said, what do you think now? And I said, oh, what, oh, what, oh, what? And she took me one afternoon into the cloakroom, and we wound that Victrola up. And while listening to Brunhilde's battle cry from the ride of the Valkyrie, I became a baritone. <laughs> anyway here in a good thing. You know, one of the big problems around our society is trying, they say affiliate, they say identify. I can identify with any poor devil that ever drank ounce alcohol against his will. But some people need more identification than others. And years ago in general service we had maybe one back there, a pamphlet called 44 Questions, and uh, oh, they were little innocuous questions like, uh, did your boss give you that look today, or did you fall off of the sofa, and you read the whole business. I could, and I couldn't quite discern what I was or wasn't. So I have contrived here, out of my sheer genius, some questions that I think that you may be able to affiliate with, and it won't take 44. Have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburned? <laughs> Have you ever had malfunction of the zipper? That's a dread disease. <laughs> Finally ends up as pink shoelace. <laughs> Have you ever been arrested while in jail? <laughs> Have you ever been run over by your own car while driving? <laughs> Have you ever woke up with a circus midget in bed with you. <laughs> you heard about that midget that got thrown out of the nudist colony because he was going around getting his nose in everybody's business. <laughs> Have you ever done the Tennessee waltz in a straitjacket? 
I have one here I think will answer a question. Have you ever woke up in the morning feeling rather delicately and lose your glasses and wash your teeth with preparation A? <laughs> I'll give you a pucker. <laughs> Good morning, dear. <laughs> I don't know. I took my first drink at age 17 to be accepted by a group of boys. Just to be included. Nancy said last night he wanted to be like other people looked. I think the, some great philosopher said that man's predominant fear is the fear of not being accepted. I took a drink one night and these other six fellows, nothing happened. I know them, I know some of them now in my own hometown that are still remaining out in that nebulous realm that we talk about of social drinking. And I, I can't explain social drinking. I know nothing about it. I have never been in it. I cannot even explain people who are non-alcoholics. I was sitting on a seminar the other day and Scott just asked me, he said, really, what is the difference between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic? And I said, well, really, I can't tell you. I haven't been here too long. And then I said to him, I believe that alcoholics drink more than non-alcoholics. <laughs> and I've never met one of us in here. Now, if I met you out there, it'd be all right. But in here, never met one of you didn't drink. So that's the way it is. And he said to me, what do you think about the people who drink and do not become alcoholics, those non-alcoholic people, he said to me. And I said, well, God damn, that's easy. They don't have any willpower. <laughs> you got to be gutsy to get here. You don't. You got to have all kinds of willpower. And those fellas didn't hit do them, but to me, Something You hear that in the book Alcoholics Anonymous a couple of times. Something happened. And something happened. Oh, my God, it was like a closed umbrella going down, then it opened up all of a sudden. All the exhilarating flow. My shoelaces stood up and saluted me that night. It was just, uh, there's no description for the exhilaration of that first drink. There's no description for the relief of that first drink. And I ultimately threw up and passed out. The very first encounter with alcohol, I threw up and passed out. But never for a waking hour from that time until today did that great experience not stand in front of me. Oh, I reasoned, where's this been so long? Why didn't they give it to me in the cradle? It's an answer. Alcohol was an answer to me for a long, long time. Oh, you know, if you feel bad, drink. 
if you feel glad, drink. And it seemed to work in every case. And I knew back here in the subconscious that if I went back to it, it would do its job, do it well, too. And it did with the first few. Then I threw up and packed out. I ended up, of all places, in Hollywood and for an East Texas club, that's a fast change. And I was taken in by a fine Jewish gentleman who was one of the more eminent designers of ladies' lingerie in Hollywood, and he took me in as his understudy because he liked me, pure and simple. Because he said I had talent, and he thought one day I could attain a modicum of genius. And he's a very patient man and gave me my first opportunity. Now, <laughs> that's a hell of a profession. That's where you cut these soft, silk, sleazy, intimate things that the ladies wear. And I had four models that belonged to me. Kind of like captives, like the slaves, if you please. The dog, delightful profession. Really it was. Now, if any of you girls got a pink this morning, I've been gone from out there a long time, so don't blame me for it. Now, we've got a step now, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the second one where it infers that you might have a gopher in the garden. <laughs> if you cut a bunch of mazeres with three of those places in them, you're nuts. And I told the psychiatrist about that, and he said it was just wishful thinking. <laughs> and needless to say, the goal and opportunity drank her up. Drank myself out of that business. No, I didn't. I cut myself out of it. <laughs> and when you start meddling with one of them Hebrews pocketbooks, he loses all love and loyalty for you. <laughs> And he came one day and rather whimsically said, you're fired. <laughs> now, this was the beginning of a long series of hurts that ultimately took place in my life. I'd love to say to you right now, I have a wonderful future behind me. I've just retired from my fifth profession. And I have to honestly say to you that the, the changes took place rather helplessly. I'm an alcoholic. I remember the whimsy of this Hebrew fellow when he came up and talked to me. He said, you got to go. And he said, there's always something good comes out of everything. Now, I wondered what the hell it was. And he said, well, if you'd have been a rabbi, the way you handle those scissors, you'd have destroyed our whole race. <laughs> this was the beginning of a trip we take through a thing called alcoholism. It's awfully bad hurt. First opportunity had already attained the modicum of respect in the industry modicum of notoriety in the industry, just to date myself, uh, 
we put the first class slacks on a gal called Marlena Dietrich in the year 1938. And you know what a rage it is. I see some of them here now. Up until that day, women wore dresses. And that started one of the biggest rages in the country. But to lose it is the beginning of loss and alcoholic. And he never completely becomes immunized to this trip. If we could just say why it happened. Joe, you got fired. They said to me, oh yes. And I gave them a thousand reasons, but none that satisfied me. And I think this is the crippled part of the illness alcoholism that we can't find the why. And I got another alcoholic to represent me at the investigation. <laughs> and he proved with tears in his eyes a thing that was about a million to one of happening. He said there was a Mexican track walker walking along there that night swinging the lantern and that I had mistaken that for a given signal. They couldn't fire me, but they gave me 60 days. We came out of that investigation, the old superintendent, the great big, huge man, 300 pounds, and he was apoplectic with rage. <laughs> he knew that he'd been had by a drunk. He just <laughs> knew that. And he... He said, he said to me, what I suspect our Alanons have said to their husbands once in a while. I'll get you if it's the last thing I ever do. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Let me be serious for one moment. You don't have to get even with an alcoholic. He's got a little old contraption inside of him that if left to his own devices, he'll ultimately get even with himself. You don't have to get even with an alcoholic. And there's nothing that you can heap upon him and call him in the throes of this helpless illness that he hasn't lay on the pill at night and called himself. He's ahead of you, way ahead of you. And he still can't find him no why. He's got to have a why. And he cries on the pillar at night. You don't have to get in with you at all. Well, you can tell me now that my relationship with my employment was no different than my relationship with my family. My relationships with the man I met on the street, all the same, just deteriorated, went to pot. I got to tell this, I'm glad my wife's not here. She got mad at me last Saturday night in Bakersfield. And she always gets mad when I tell this story. Says it's not true. But these Alanons, I've noticed that they got a leaky memory sometimes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
I was in the bar. We were living with my sister-in-law. Oh, God, what a woman. <laughs> Delightful woman. During the war, and I didn't have any place else to go. We were living with my wife's sister. And I'd been in the bar all day long, drinking intermittently, you know, and passing out, napping a while, coming back. Did you ever stay all day? <laughs> I stayed all day. Hell of a fine bar. Had sleeping facilities and <laughs> over in that corner. You could get up and drink some more, lay down, get up and drink. This was a regular thing. And somehow or other, at four o'clock in the afternoon about, I decided that I would go home. And uh, it was on Main Street, four blocks. If it had been off of Main Street, I'd still been looking for it. And I went home this afternoon and threw myself upon the bed. And remember, I've got enough rest in the bar. And at any other time, I would have been out. Any other time, I would have been asleep. But I heard it. This is the conversation that went on in the next room. My wife in hysteria, actually in hysteria, cried out to her sister. And she said, what would you do if you were living with a man like that? And her old sister didn't hesitate a damn minute. She said, I'd poison the son of a bitch. <laughs> I suspect that those of you who are alcoholics, who've had the hurts and the humiliations, know how little I felt, how absolutely helpless I felt. And I wasn't dumb. From then on, they ate first. An <laughs> alcoholic lives in constant fear. Today, today they're going to get me. You couldn't acknowledge that you had heard that. You ought to carry around in here. When an alcoholic comes, say, hey, my God, he's got that ball down there. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I suspect that the freedom and the relief that occurs in a trip in Alcoholics Anonymous is the relief that they let us tell it. They let us talk about it. We can get around. We don't have to be ashamed of it anymore. Some lines in our book of experience, the greatest promise I suspect that takes away the shame of alcoholism, I want the gals to hear this. I'll read it for you it's in chapter 9. And it says in there, cling to the thought that in God's hand your dark past is the greatest treasure you possess. I thought I was going to have to get rid of it, like I always told me when I went to church. Cast it out. Do away with it. And they told me that my dark past was the greatest treasure that I possessed if I only would put it in God's hands. Then they made a promise following that sentence that no other facet of society has ever been entitled to but us drunks. The promise. With it, 
you can avert death and misery for others. What kind of a society is this? That we should be entitled to the awesome responsibility of our fellow man. Everybody failed with us. The doctors wanted to help us and couldn't. The ministers have labored hours and hours trying to understand it. Society and the employer have given up thousands of hours to the point that they turn us loose. And I suspect that God said, if you're going to get well, you'll have to do it yourself. With it, you can avert death and misery for other alcoholics. Cling to the thought that in God's hand, your dark past is the greatest treasure you possess. Awesome. Absolutely awesome to me. I think that we're all cut up and scarred and beat up when we come to AA. We want to be ashamed of them. I'll tell you a personal story, and maybe I shouldn't, but I will. In 1968, I had a hell of a bad cardiac, cardiac arrest. Two complete cardiac. Not supposed to be here. And it was a long and tedious journey back, and I had to live another new way of life in order to survive. Some people who don't have the capacity for getting well from a heart attack. And would you believe, would you believe that the finest accepted heart specialist in that part of the country was standing in for my doctor that night? Would you believe that? And it's a long and tedious and slow procedure to get well. And not too many years ago, I became very apprehensive about my condition. You know, it gets old walking around, getting ready to drop dead every minute. You know that. <laughs> and I went to this little doctor, and I said to him, For God's sake, look at me. Tell me something. I'm apprehensive about my situation. And the nice little, oh God, he's a sweetheart. And he took me in, hooked me up to the hoses and the gags and all of that jazz. And then he started talking. And he said these words to me. You didn't know, you didn't have to tell us when you came in here off of this street that you'd had a heart attack. This machine that we have shows the scar. Every time she goes, the scar shows up. And then he said the words that were rather apropos to the statement I just made. He said, would you believe that the scars are the strongest part of your heart? So can we not change it? Cling to the thought that in God's hands, your scars are the greatest treasure you possess in AA. I don't know how to express gratitude for AA. I, I'm not in, have that literate capacity, but I couldn't pass without saying that. I was run out of the state of California. <coughs> I used to say, I left there a thoroughly discredited man. <laughs> they ran me out. 
like that. And it was the reversal of the story of the prodigal son. Didn't work like that. They saw him coming from afar and threw his butt in jail. <laughs> now here's a hot cat, the, the sharpie, the resourceful guy, the fellow with all the answers, the hot cat from Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And I come home and they don't show me any more respect than that and throw me in a dirty old hot county jail. My mother did this to me, and you can well imagine what a deflation took place. Bill was friendly with the works of William James, and it occurs in our book of experience a number of times. William James wrote the book Variety of Religious Experience. One of his greatest and most pronounced statements in there says that the greatest spiritual experiences come from the depths of deflation. This is what Dr. Silkworth told early in our society when Bill was getting ready to go to Akron before he ever talked to Dr. Bob. Silkworth said, deflate them. Tell them the true nature of their malady. And then you can talk about this God stuff. And these people, who were not alcoholics, lit so many candles to this society. So many people in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous who were losers, who never got to enjoy a day of sobriety. The fellow that gave us our name never got a day. Alcoholics Anonymous died in a nuthouse. So I guess the moral there. If you don't learn to love the losers, you ain't going to have no winners in this outfit, for God's sake. If you don't love the losers, how's he going to become a winner? Who uses the word, he ain't ready? What the hell color do you have to turn when you're ready? <laughs> Here I am, jail. Now maybe we won't laugh so much. One Monday morning, there came a fellow to my cell, a man I'd never seen, a complete stranger. And he asked for me by name. And he stood and looked through those jail bars and gave me what we've come to know as the AA pitch. And I look back on it now, I suspect that if you had a description for this scene, you could only entitle it cruel. It was a cruel encounter to see an animal like me, the arrogant, piteous thing, as Shakespeare calls it, hemmed in, having to listen to this man. You see, if I hadn't have been locked up, I would have spun on my heel and left. I wouldn't have heard it. I'm a great believer in jail. I think the greatest things come out of jail. God damn, St. Paul wouldn't have been half effective if he hadn't have kept him locked up all the time. <laughs> and here this guy stood telling me about himself, the dirty rascal, he wouldn't let me talk about me. 
Never a word. Just about me. And he practiced his talk. And I remember this ringing in my ears. More than once he said, we have found from our experience. We have found from our experience that if certain things are done, certain things automatically happen. And I hated his gut. And I said to him, who sent you to see me? That's who I particularly wanted to hate, you know, running me down my status in the neighborhood like that. And I want to tell you something about this encounter. I'm going to use a word here that you very seldom hear around AA, and I might be able to straighten out one point that mixes everybody up. This fellow came unsolicited. If you dingbats had waited for me to call you, I'd have had to die. I would have had to die. And he came unsolicited. And I know why he came now. You see, there's a great erroneous idea that Alcoholics Anonymous, I hear him up here, works on attraction rather than promotion. That's all right with the public and them dingbats out there. But our staying alive policy is encompassed in the first paragraph of chapter 7 in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the big blue one, in case you don't know which one it is. And I shall read that to you. Tell you why that guy came. He came to protect himself. The surest immunity. Oh, wait a minute. Practical experience shows us that the surest immunity against drinking is extensive work with other alcoholics. This works, it says, when all other activities fail. When your prior group blows it, when your transcendental meditation group blows it, when your Sitting in a touching group blows it. This works. When all other activities fail, and this guy read it and he'd read it well, and then comes the thing that we don't have many of, and I, but it seems to me by studying literature that anything that is followed by an exclamation mark is command, or it's something outstanding. And the next sentence is probably one of the briefest we have in our whole society. And it says, carry this message to the other alcohol. How have you managed to screw that one up? Pray tell me. And this guy was coming for himself. He knew that if he perpetuated his own sobriety, by going and talking to some dingbat, it didn't make any difference who it was. He was there for self-protection, perpetuating his own sobriety. And thank God I was a nut that was standing there to be worked on. Thank God I was standing in the right place once at the right time. And I never remembered any of the profundities 
that this man said to me. I remember one thing, and I remember to this day he stood still. Oh, so still did he stand. It's like that. I couldn't rattle him. I couldn't cut him. And the serenity of years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous showed all over the man. And I couldn't make him go. You know, I, 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 I'm standing there. I'm a leaper. You don't know what a leaper is? You don't like that. I, I was a jumper and a leaper. Here this guy standing still. And I subconsciously wanted to stand still. I've been humiliated, and I know you have, with coffee cups and dishes. And we buy coffee and set it down and can't drink it in front of somebody. And I'm that way. I'm helplessly shaken. You ever seen the sign in, uh, well, it's a picture in the Cosmopolitan magazine of the man with the top hat on that's carrying his bride across the threshold? I used to do that to people on the street. I'd lift up in their arms, you know, and hug them like this. Appear not. And this guy came, and if you hadn't said a word, he just stood still. Just stood still. And I'll never forget it, and I couldn't erase him out of my memory. I didn't follow him. Hell, I was too full of hate and bitterness, and my people are substantial citizens down there, and they hired two deputy sheriffs to load me into a police car and carry me 200 miles to Houston, Texas, and put me on a train to go west. What did I say a while ago? Keep him moving, keep him moving. And they carried me off of that train in a wheelchair in Los Angeles. I'd kind of set up shop in one of the toilets, and some smart ass said, we got to use this car, it goes both ways, you know. And I got up to walk and couldn't. They took me and three dirty old bags out on the front foyer, if you've ever been that old station in Los Angeles, very unceremoniously dumping. But all the jocular remark that it might make, all the levity and all the fun that we have looking back on the ridiculous addicts of an alcoholic, the next five months were a living hell. And I dare not describe them. I ended up in the flop house in Sacramento. There's some people around who know what the flop house in Sacramento was in the year 1949. And there I was. There I was. And there was never a waiting hour. Don't tell me you can't talk to a drunk when he's drunk. When was I ever sober? One night in a maudlin state, believe me, half crazy and half drunk. I punched my ticket to AA. I did the necessary thing to become a member of this society for recovery. Fell on my knees and said, God help me. That's all and nothing more. And I don't think that God wants us to be profound. I'm scared of a letter-perfect description of God. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm arrogant, and if I knew all there was to know about God, he might not be good enough for me, I'll tell you. 
I'd rather live with the mystery of the power, of the magnificent power that can bring a helpless drunk from that flop house to Evansville, Indiana. That's kind of a God I understand and no more. I do not have to elaborate upon that. I walked back 2,600 miles to find this guy, and it was a long walk, my friend, a hell of a long walk. I got there and I found him. Can you imagine having your story just busted all to hell to take the drama and the pathos out of an alcoholic story? And I was telling that the first six months when I came there, eh? And some dummy walked up to me and he said, well, you're dumb. And it was an AA club three blocks from that damn flop house you were in. And it ruined my ego for that. But things have to be like they are, and I followed him there. And here, the recovery begins. I think that we see some signs hanging around our societies very frequently, and they read, first time we've ever used the word I and AA. I don't somehow kind of like it, but most up until we got smart and started that, we always used we. I don't know where that sign came from. I don't like I and AA. I like we a whole lot better. But the sign reads, I am responsible. And I suspect that there is a responsibility in the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous worth mentioning. It is the responsibility of what we show that, note, uh, show that new cat the night he comes the first time. Man, that's his night. He's been coming a long time. And I have a horror of him coming into some of the big fashionable clubs while people are playing games. And as Bill so adequately described it, have to turn his head to the wall and die. I only got a half a message when I came but my desperation was such that it sustained me until I could get the whole load. And I think this is our responsibility. And i got to tell you about my first AA meeting. i got to tell you about my night. It is my night. I worked hard for it, and I earned it. And they shoved me up those old dingy, dirty stairs. Why the hell did they used to all be upstairs? I don't know. They always were. And these stars were kind of cut on the bus, and this guy shoves me half up there. I weighed 119 pounds, had on an old pair of pants. Those were the days when you wore elastic belts, and all of the elasticity had fled. And I held my pants up with one hand, and he held my arm with the other. And I didn't have any teeth. You don't miss them. <laughs> I was a month in air of no teeth. You can well imagine how I look. Possibly I smell. That night those people did their work well, for God's sake, and I'm here today because they did their work well. 
This is the reason that I stand here today, because that bunch of dingbats did it right. There was some fellow came up to me with an old pair of overalls all looked like he had about a third grade education, said to me, the genius, we're glad you're here. He said to me, and I looked him from top to bottom with the gravy on the bib of that damn thing, and I thought, who's God I'm here? You know that. And this was the essence of this society, the open arms and the tender love that they gave me that night. And then in the back of the thing came an old sheriff who had locked me up in his jail long years before that for felonious drunk driving. He had his pistols on. This old sheriff had a reputation for brutality. He had thrown prisoners up against the wall. He was a big hulk of a man. And he walked up to me that night and I and he said, I love you, boy, and you stay sober like I do. What is this thing that Bill talks about in the book of Transmittal? What is it? What makes a drunk find him a why and he can see somebody puts an arm around him? Said, we're glad you're here. And then over to the side, they said a fellow who drove me crazy at this front meeting. I knew I knew him, but I'd been on a steady diet of phenobarbital and gallo wine and letting them run concurrently. <laughs> and I couldn't focus as good. The steps were running around the room. But I knew I knew this guy. And he's sitting there with a cigar, gently smoking it. Had on a big diamond ring. Had lots of serenity here, you know. <laughs> and I knew I knew it. And finally, when I found out who he was, I had soldiered with him 20 years prior to this time, and the last time I'd seen him, he was a blubbering idiot. The army had him chained to a post on a chain, if you please. And he'd run up and down that post like an idiot, and we'd slip him whiskey just to watch him perform. He was a dingbat. Here he sits in AA. The very emanation of peace. You know what my first reaction was and my genius? If it'll help him that much, it'll make a goddamn genius out of me. You know that. I don't know how uh, how long you fool with a drunk or what you do to him. I think it's an endless procedure. The only way you're going to make a winner out of a loser is to visit him. There's only two fulfillments of sobriety as far as I'm concerned. That's your relationship with God and your availability to the drunk. And that's about the size of this thing. Just about the size of this thing. One night I got a call to go see a drunk. Had a new car already in AA, and I'm a floating high. A pure genius. I'd quit cussing. I just, you know, I would just. Uh, you ever seen an AA member become godlike? <laughs> I was godlike. 
I didn't know who the hell was giving this thing away, really, I didn't. And I go to see the drunk, and the bartender's taking his bottle, won't give it back to him until I come and retrieve it, and that's all God just the drunk wanted. But I couldn't see that. I was too godlike. Put him in the new car between me and the other fellow, and I drove slowly, and I began to give him the pitch. Oh, God, how eloquent was I that night. And as we drove slowly, his eyes began to water, and I thought, I'm getting him. <laughs> and with further piosity and eloquence, he gently lay his head over on my shoulder, and I thought, oh, I've got him. <laughs> Did you ever hear of a drunk puking silently? <laughs> Ever drunk I've ever been godlike with? They puke on me for some reason. They just won't let me be godlike with. I don't know how long you work with a drunk. I worked with one for four and a half years once. Now he came to AA, and he's real scurvy. He called AA answering service. My wife took the call, and she said, "Yes, y'all be there." And I went, and he was a real scurvy one. I borrowed a goblet full of whiskey from a fellow, and I poured it down. I really knocked him out. <laughs> and when he kind of came unshuckled from that drink, he was sitting in an AA club. I believe anyway you get the bastard there, it's all right. <laughs> And he got sober, got sober and stayed sober for three months, under my guidance. <laughs> and then he got drunk. Didn't hurt him much, he was kind of used to it. <laughs> but it raised hell with my ego, and I was determined this man was going to sober up under my guidance. And I went again, and I went again, and I went again for four and a half years, I went again. And he had another little affectation I know none of you folks have got. He'd go to faraway places and call me collect. <laughs> to tell me that he was drunk. <laughs> and I prayed about him. God, I said, dear God, you've been watching them stars too much to let me have this one. I'll tell you, he's made a kind of a side project out of him, but it never let him go. Never let him go. Twelve years ago, he got on for him what was his last drunk in one of our local motels. And he called another fella from our group that ain't half as smart as I am. <laughs> and he went out and talked to that bastard ten minutes, and he has never had another <laughs> to sit in the club and look at him and say, you ought to be mine. <laughs> and if I know anything of the treasure that God has given us in this society, if I know anything of the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous, I owe him more than he owes me.
He kept me sober for four and a half years. What is it like? I don't know. What is it like? we got to go now, and I'll tell you a little story that kind of looks like me. I've liked it, and somebody's asked me to tell it. This story comes from another book, not out of our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. The story was written 2,000 years ago. Story about a sick man, sicker than hell he was. Story about a nut, real nutty. And it's the story that's in the scripture under title the demoniac. And I'll have to tell it to you like it appeared to me, as though it seemed to me. And this fellow it says in the scripture that. <laughs> The manifestation of his disease was such that they had to keep him in fetters and chains. They called him a demoniac, a maniac full of demons. You know, they didn't have any psychiatrists in those days, and that was all they could call him. We'd have had him now, we'd have had him as a catatonic or bedwetter or something, you know. <laughs> but for the lack of better verbiage, they called him a demoniac said that the manifestation of his disease was such that they had to keep him in fetters and chains. That's the same as jail, like me. said that he got so bad, this fellow got so bad that they had to run him out of town. That's a whole lot like me. And it says that he ended up out on the riverbank eating with pigs, like me. If your imagination is half as good as mine, you can see the picture, the filth and the stench and the babble of a nut, like me. And there seems to have been at that time a little carpenter fellow going around the country teaching some new philosophy of love and he came upon the nut. And the little carpenter had a facility that you and I and AA have not quite acquired yet. He could see no ill in anyone. So he said to the nut, Are you having some trouble, boy? And the nut and his self-pity right back and he said, Trouble is my name. I have so many that they call me legion. The little carpenter knew that the man needed some help. He didn't say to him, Are you ready? <laughs> he effected a treatment upon this man. He effected a healing process upon the man that was as little understood in those days as Alcoholics Anonymous is understood today had to do with casting the evil spirits out of them. And you know the story at your mother's knee. It, the pigs were, put them into the pigs and they ran off into the sea and were dead. And there was some stool pigeons around. And they ran into the city and they told these people that owned the pigs. You know, in those days the pig business was big business. And they said to these people, you out of the pig business. 
And these people were naturally upset. I think the Bible uses a description in sense. They were so incensed that they went in mass back out to see what happened to the pig. And here comes the second step of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, per se, when they got there, there he sat, fully clothed and in his right mind. We have a step, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. There sat, fully clothed and in his right mind. And these people were so mad at the loss of their pigs, they were more interested in the fact that they had lost these material pigs <coughs> than they were in the fact that one feller got well. And they prevailed upon him to leave. And I can see the knot in this timidity having come from one existence, one horrible existence into another, but not yet having the time to enjoy the fruits of it. And in his timidity, he looked over to his sponsor and said, Let me go with you. A little carpenter broke a rule for us. Everybody that he'd ever helped up until this time, he'd said to them, Go on, don't say anything about it. You were blind, now you see. But he broke a rule for us. And he said to the nut, no, you can't go with me. What I would say to you as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, he said, stay here so that others can see what has happened to you. Thank you so very much.